Thanks, Andrew. I don't know what, you, you love having to stand up really high. Just, just, there we go. I'm going to do that. I don't know what you're hiding, Andrew. Um, <laughs> that's really funny about what we're going to talk about actually today. Uh, but uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel, and I serve on the pastoral staff here uh, at the Leewood Campus of Christ Community, and it's a joy to be here with you all. Um, we're going to be camped out in Psalm 32, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there, uh, either electronically, paperly, uh, if that's a word. Um, but as you're going there, I, I want to share a story kind of by way of introduction. It's a story that is attributed to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, and who's well known for the, the Sherlock Holmes stories. And the story goes that he was pulling this little prank on his five closest friends. And, and what he did is he wrote these anonymous letters uh, that had no indication as to who it was from, so no return address or anything. And he sends these letters at the same time to five friends, and all the letter says is, flee at once, all has been discovered. <laughs> and, and so later that week, he invites his friends to dinner, these same five friends to dinner. And they all come except for one. One of his friends does not show up. And the story goes that this friend left town and was never heard from again. <laughs> now, depending on your sense of humor, this is either brilliantly hilarious or incredibly cruel. And I'm just going to cast my vote for brilliantly hilarious. And so, and, and the, the point of the story, whether it's true or not, uh, is this idea that we, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had no need to know what the secret was that his friend was hiding. He was operating under the assumption that we all have something that is under lock and key, or so we think. And, and this is true. I mean, we all know, like right now, you're like, oh my gosh, what, what do you know? What do you know now, Reed? And so, but I, I say this because there are many things, whether your life is a public life, a private life, whether you are, are, are close with your spouse or your friends or family or coworkers, we all have things that we are terrified of other people knowing that no one else knows. And some of those things are insignificant. Like, you know, I've never admitted, actually, that I like the song This Kiss by Faith Hill. <laughs> this kiss, this kiss, it's criminal. You know, that's not, you know, like, I, I've never admitted it. This is just just place of healing. This is a safe place. I have admitted that now. Uh, I'm just keeping it real, people. But, but so some things are insignificant. Like, it's not that consequential if someone knew. But there are other things that the, the even thought of someone finding out f fills us with fear, fills us with trepidation, and we don't know what to do. And uh, the, the point of this is to show that we all, regardless of where we are, regardless of how private or public our lives are, we all have something we're hiding. And what's interesting is that there's this sense in which we are afraid of people knowing us, but at the same time, we long to be known. And that's what's peculiar about the human condition. We all have, at the same time, a fear and a desire to be known, to be in a relationship of intimacy where we can be free to be ourselves, but at the same time, that terrifies us because we know that intimacy requires vulnerability. And to step out and to be open and honest with who we are and our fears and our mistakes is a terrifying thing. It's why Frederick Buechner in his book, Telling Secrets, described this kind of, this paradox in the human condition. He says this, what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we are also, we also fear more than anything else. We long to be known, we long to experience int intimacy, but at the same time we're petrified of it because we know it costs being vulnerable. Now, if you've been with us these past few weeks, we've been in the book of Psalms, and we've been exploring what a, a vibrant prayer life looks like and what it means to listen, to hear God. 
And we've seen that it requires having an attentiveness to, to God's presence in our lives as well as to our own lives. That it also requires a sense of vulnerability as well as developing habits and patterns and rhythms. And this morning, what I'd like us to focus in on is this idea that a vibrant prayer life requires and should have this element of confession. And and regardless of, of your spiritual background or religious activity, prayer is a difficult thing by itself. But, but I, would, I would venture to guess that even if we had vibrant prayer lives, if, if you have a vibrant prayer life, I would wonder, I would just question if confession is seen as a vital or even necessary element in your prayer life. Because this is true both in the church, outside the church. You don't typically see people just opening up and being honest about their mistakes and their failures. You don't see people just soliciting this information like, this is where I have failed, this is where I have made mistakes, this is what I am afraid of other people knowing. We don't see that. And what I want us to see this morning from Psalm 32 is that confession must be a vital and central theme in our prayers because in it what we find is that in transparency, in vulnerability, we experience intimacy. But the opposite is also true, that when we are silent about our sins, about our brokenness and fears in prayer, our silence strengthens sorrow and weakens happiness. That's kind of the the big idea I want us to see this morning, that when we are silent about our sin, about our fears, about our mistakes, it strengthens sorrow and it weakens happiness. So in Psalm 32, I want us to look at a few things. And the first thing is this, is that openness in prayer and confession frees us. Openness frees us. Now David, King David, is the, is the author of this psalm, and he begins by describing the blessed person. He says, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. And this is actually a similar way in which he opens up the book of Psalms in Psalm 1. It begins with, blessed is the man. The difference is that Psalm 1 is describing what the blessed person looks like, how he lives his life. But in Psalm 32, David is showing us the pathway to the blessed life, what gets us to that place. And, and the word blessed, just to kind of get us on the same page, the word blessed, it's kind of a churchy term, but in some ways it's not. Uh, we, we hear it, we see it uh, tagged as a hashtag with pictures, you know, like, I'm on a beach with my buddies, hashtag blessed. So like, we, we just see this as a common thing in pictures. And, and the word blessed literally just means happy. But, but our English word happy doesn't do justice to what this idea of blessedness is that David has for us. The idea of blessedness is, is a life of completion, of contentment and of being carefree. And I think we can all get on board with that. Like, okay, I see that. A happy life, a blessed life would be that. But the question is, what is the path to that? What is it that results in a content, uh, contented life, a carefree life? What is the path? And if Twitter and Instagram were our only source of information, we would conclude that beach vacations and the perfect fitting jeans and pumpkin spice lattes are the path to the blessed life. And while those are great things, David has a wider view of what the blessed life is. And he shows us that the blessed life is a life of being forgiven. As great as things are, like pumpkin spice lattes, the bigger picture is that the blessed life is a life of being forgiven. Notice in the first two verses, David begins by saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, one thing to notice is that David is not describing the blessed life as as found through the pathway of accomplishing something, of doing something. 
He doesn't, you know, begin by these are the seven steps to the blessed life or this is your blessed life now or whatever. He's not introducing these things. He's saying, no, no, the blessed life, some of you caught that, but the blessed life is that it is about receiving. It is being recipients of God's mercy, of being forgiven. It is not about our actions. It begins by surrendering and receiving God's mercy. Now, I realize that the words confession, mercy, forgiveness, and these are churchy terms. But just to kind of get us on the same page, we, we all feel and experience shame and guilt and regret for things we've done, for things we've left undone, for things we've said, things we've seen, even just who we are as people. We all feel this regret. And the question for all of us is, what do we do with it? What do we do with the things that we have regretted doing? What do we do with the shame and the guilt that we all experience? Where can we run? Where can we hide? And what David proposes to us is that we must have a big view of our sin as well as a big view of God. And to miss out on either of those will keep us in the dark and silent about our sin. Because the, the, thing, the thing that I'm afraid of is that the reason that we are less quick to confess sin, to be transparent and vulnerable, is because we have a very watered-down view of God. We, we have adopted what, what Christian Smith has referred to as this, this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. That, that my understanding of God is that he is, he's a God, he created things, but as far as being involved in, in the intimate details of my life, not so much. He really just cares about me being good, moralistic, and he wants me to be happy, therapeutic. And so if that is our view of God, we will never confess sin to that God. Because he doesn't care, and he can't do anything about it. But if our view of God is the view that David has, that God is a God of love and justice, then he simultaneously hates our sin, and yet stands ready, able, and quick to forgive our sin. When we understand God in that way, it changes the way in which we view our sin and approach God with our sin. And, and in order to see this, I want us to, to give some attention to how David explains and describes our sin and then God's response to it through forgiveness. If you notice, David uses three words to describe sin, transgression, sin, and iniquity. And, and these aren't just synonyms, these are various ways of describing the layers of sin. The first word, transgression, has this idea of rebellion, this idea of a, of a personal relationship severed, that I don't want anything to do with you. I am rebelling against you. I don't stand for what you stand for. In fact, I stand against what you stand for. There's rebellion, separation, division. The second word, sin, which we're probably more familiar with, has this idea of missing the mark, falling short. And this has more to do with our idea of, of violating God's laws, that there is a violation of his laws and we now stand guilty. So there's a relational aspect with transgression and there's this legal aspect with sin, but then the third word, iniquity, which we don't use very often, uh, has more of a personal element as it relates to us. That iniquity is about how sin corrupts us. That it's not just a division between us and God, it separates us from God, but sin has an impact on us, and in some ways, it makes us less and less human as God has designed us to be. And so David wants us to see the, the weight of sin, but he wants us to also see how God responds to this three-headed monster of sin with his three-pronged trident, if you will, of forgiveness. And he says that, that blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. The word forgiven has this imagery of lifted, 
of things being taken off, this idea of burdens being removed. And even, even saying that, there's this almost kind of relief, like, oh, that's a beautiful feeling. That's a beautiful idea. Our sins are forgiven. They are taken away from us. But he also uses this word cover, this idea, which is kind of backwards, like you have lifted and then covered. And the idea of covering is, is, is about protection, that, that God in his forgiveness is protecting us, covering us from the judgment we deserve because of sin. There is a lifting and a covering, a protective nature to God's forgiveness. And lastly, it says that he counts not our iniquity against us. That the record has been cleared, the ledger has been removed, the debt has been paid. God no longer counts our sin against us. We are forgiven completely. We have to understand both of these if we are going to find the freedom and the sweetness of being open in confession and prayer. Without them, we will remain silent. But one last thing to note about how, how openness, how we might be prompted to be more open in prayer is that notice how immediate God's forgiveness is. In verse 5, D- David says, I will say to you, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then the selah, which is a word to, to kind of um, communicate pause or reflection, it comes after that. The pause does not come I will confess my transgression. Let me, let me reflect on that. He says, I will tr- confess my transgression to the Lord, and then in- instantly you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's no six to eight business day waiting period for the delivery of God's forgiveness. It's better than next day air, priority shipping, or drone delivery through Amazons or whatever, you know? It's an immediacy to it. And when we understand that, we may find ourselves being more willing and able to be open in confession through prayer. So we see first that openness frees us, but then David continues and shows us the converse of this reality that also silence destroys us. Silence destroys us. Look with me at verses three and four. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is speaking from experience here. He knows what happens to his heart and to his body when he remains silent about his sin, when he tries to manage it. He knows that it doesn't just have this spiritual consequence, but a physical one, which we'll get to in a second. But he highlights what happens. This is what happens to a soul, to a heart, to a body when we remain silent about sin. And he's speaking from experience. And he shows us that when we remain silent in our sin, it destroys us in a few ways. One of which is that it deepens our inner turmoil. When we remain silent about sin, it deepens the inner turmoil within us. Keeping silent about sin and trying to manage it on our own is not just an act that keeps us from the blessed life of forgiveness, but it actually makes matters worse. It actually allows sin to grow and to fester because sin operates and functions like a fungus. It grows in dark places. And when there is no light shining on it, it has the ability and the power to spread and to destroy. And so when we seek to avoid being forgiven and confessing our sin, we are allowing sin to grow and fester. And it has its way with us. And we are deluding ourselves and thinking, no, I've got this. I can manage it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, in this this chapter on confession, very accurately says this. He says, the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. 
and more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. And deep down, we all know this. We all know this, that keeping silent, avoiding this idea of transparency and vulnerability, we all know this, that it creates more problems. But, but we believe that the path to the blessed life through confession is antithetical to our normal way of thinking. We think that, no, I need to maintain a good reputation, I need to be well-liked and well-respected, and being open and honest about my failures and mistakes, that does not bode well for my idea of the blessed life. But what we find is that the more we bury and the more we blame our sin on someone else, the more enslaved we find ourselves. Recently, there was a, an influential pastor who uh, came out that he had an affair, uh, and he ended up uh, having, a, having a divorce from his wife. And, and in reflecting on this, he sent out a tweet that I think actually captures this mindset that David is showing us. And he says this. He said, while trying to find someone or something outside of me to blame for my sin, while that seemed to promise freedom, it only delivered deeper slavery. And like I said, we all know this. We all know deep down that by remaining silent, it is just going to eat away at us. But somewhere along the lines, we bought into the lie that the cost of others knowing our mistakes is greater than the cost of sin growing and spreading in us silently. And it leads us down a path where truly sorrows are strengthened and happiness is weakened. David shows us again, though, that, that another aspect of how silence destroys us is that it delays the inevitable. Rather than confessing our sin to God that we might experience the blessedness of forgiveness, we so often choose to cover up ourselves, to manage it, to hide it, thinking that we know best, which is so foolish considering the fact that God knows all things. There is nowhere we can go from his spirit. He knows us and understands our sin more than even we do. So there's a foolishness in trying to hide it. And really, we've been doing this since the dawn of time. If you look at, at the origin of sin... Adam and Eve rebelling in the garden, disobeying God. What happens? They see that they're naked, they feel shame, and what do they do? They cover themselves. And then as they hear God entering the garden, what do they do? They run for cover. They try to hide. They try to manage their sin rather than coming to the one who is quick and merciful to forgive us our sin. They would rather hide than run for cover. Or consider David who wrote this psalm in his affair with Bathsheba, what does he do? Instead of confessing it, coming clean, he tries to fix it himself, and he makes matters worse. And what happens? He, he ends up putting a man to death, Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. When David keeps silent about his prayer, it destroys, and it makes a greater problem. David knows this. He's speaking from experience. We can either cover up our sin and eventually have the covers blown off, or we can come to the one who is ready and willing to forgive us. But the reality is our sin will find us out one way or another. It will be brought to the light. We have the option of choosing how that will be brought to the light. The third thing that, that silence about our sin does is that it diminishes our strength. It deepens our inner turmoil, it delays the inevitable, but it, delays the inevitable, but it also diminishes our strength. If you notice, David describes his silent sin, remaining silent about his sin, 
as having a physical consequence. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There's a sense in which our silent sins create a physical consequence, which is so interesting because sin is, we tend to think it's just a spiritual thing. It it affects my soul, my heart, but, but there is this sense in which sin impacts our physiology, our, our mental health, and, our, and our, our emotional health. And the reason for this is because God has created us as both physical and spiritual beings so that sin, as it starts to destroy us, does not just impact the spirit and the soul, but it destroys the body as well, even the physical creation, as Scripture talks about. And the reason for this, the reason why our bodies ache when we remain silent about sin is because sin is a foreign object, It is an abnormality that was never intended to be a part of us. God created us holy, perfect, and blameless. Sin enters the world, and we are now an abnormality of what we were supposed to be. And we all know this. Because each and every one of us, regardless of our religious convictions or beliefs, we all know, and we've all experienced that moment when we say, this ought not to be. I shouldn't be this way but where does that come from? Where does that conviction come from? It comes from the fact that this life that we're experiencing is not the life that God designed us to live. Think about it this way. If you have a splinter in your thumb, that's painful, right? And, and, and it's painful because that shouldn't be there. And your mind is drawn to it, and you go throughout your day like, oh, the splinter is annoying, and you're reminded every time you try to open something. And it's painful, and your mind is drawn to it, because it was not to be a part of your body. But what, happened, what if you ignore a splinter? Like, that's fine, just a piece of wood in my body. If you ignore that, what happens? It, it can be infected and it spreads. And it's not just your thumb that is now plagued. Your whole body can be impacted by this, almost to the point of death, if it's never treated. Why? Because that splinter was never designed to be a part of your body. In the same way, sin was never in- intended to be a part of our lives. And when we remain silent, it's just like the person who refuses to take a splinter out. They're stubborn. And it perpetuates this lie that, no, I'm fine, I've got it, I'm under control. That's why David says in verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The more stubborn we are, the more and more we remain silent about our sin, the greater advantage that our enemy within us has. And any good war general will tell you that if you underestimate your enemy, you've lost the battle. You've lost. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, which is a great book, a little dense, but in his book, he talks about how the, when, when sin is least felt, it is the most powerful. And when we just ignore this enemy, like, no, it's fine, it's not a big deal, I've got this, that is when our enemy has its greatest advantage. And if I could commend a book to you just on this subject, a great book is called The Enemy Within by Chris Lundgaard. And it's a phenomenal book. It's actually a modern adaptation of an old book, The the Mortification of Sin, that I reference. And it just helps us understand the enemy that is within us. Or another one that's a little bit more of a creative approach is The Screwtape Letters, which I'm sure many are familiar with. But great books that help us understand the enemy that is in us that seeks to destroy us. So we've seen that that openness frees us. We've seen that that silence can destroy us when it comes to confession and prayer. But the last thing that David points us to is that praise completes us. Praise completes us. 
In verse 6, we see there's this, this shift, this focus shift where David uh, says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What I want us to see is that our confidence to approach God with our sin and vulnerability, confessing our sins to him, is rooted in his mercy that is quick to forgive. And if we come to see that God is quick to forgive because of his mercy, then we will more readily approach him with our sins. And what David wants us to see is that when that happens, the natural response and result is praise. And he's making a connection for us that actually, if we do not result in praise, if our confession does not result in praise, then there is a good indication that we are still in our sin and we didn't actually confess it in sincerity. And the reason I say that is this, that if you have truly come to experience the freedom of forgiveness, that if you can experience the blessedness of the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose iniquity God does not count anymore, how on earth could we not respond in praise? If we don't respond in praise, then we're in our sin for two reasons. Either one, because we don't want to let go of this sin, we confess it in an obligatory way, like, well, I just feel like I need to, but I don't want to let it go. It's too important to me. That is the sin of idolatry, where this sin is, is so great, I don't want to give it to God. Or we're saying, no, my sin is too great. God could not forgive this. You don't know what's in my heart, what I've done. And that is the idolatry of sin, placing sin above God's grace. And let me tell you, you can't out God's grace. And we need to see that. And if we don't believe that, then we will remain silent. For David, praise is the natural completion of responding to God's mercy, confessing our sin to him. Without praise, we should question if our confession is genuine at all. This is actually what what C.S. Lewis says in his reflection on the Psalms, one of my favorite quotes by him. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In the same way, if we can't respond to God's amazing mercy towards us and forgiving our sins in saying, I do not see sin in this person anymore, how could we not respond and praise to him as the one who is our protection who is the one who is our preservation and our place of hiding. David is only able to praise God for being those things because he understands the depth of his sin and the depth of God's forgiveness. This is the good news that we all need to hear. That all of us, we, when we try to cover our own sin and shame, we, we don't have to do this. That is a fool's errand. We don't have to cover our sin. We don't have to be our own hiding place because when we do, When we seek to be our own hiding place, we will be exposed for the weakness that is found in that pathway to the blessed life. What David only knew in part, here's what's so fascinating. David's confidence in God's forgiveness, he only knew in part what we now know in full, or at least fuller. David was looking forward to the day that the Messiah would come and be his forgiveness. And we on this side of the cross have an even greater sense of confidence 
knowing that our sins have been paid for at the cross, we can look back and say, I have all the more confidence to come forward in vulnerability and confession, knowing that my God, although he hates sin, is ready and able and quick to forgive me of my sin. This is the news that we all need to hear. We don't need to cover up our sin anymore because in Christ, our sins are covered, paid for entirely. We don't need to hide our sin anymore because in Christ, God has become our hiding place. As the great hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin my double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. God is now our hiding place. We don't have to be our own hiding place. And lastly, we don't need to remain in sorrow because in Christ, we are surrounded with steadfast love. This is the reason for our confidence in coming to God and trusting that he can do something about our condition. And again, we need to see that it is, it's not the morally upright, it's not the religiously devout that are considered blessed. It is those that have come with nothing in their hand, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Foul I too, the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the idea. It's not those that have it all together. It's those that realize they have nothing apart from Christ. But the reality is that so many of us, we, we, we want that to be true, and even we, we probably believe it to be true, but we still are remaining silent about sin that is destroying us and destroying others. And so I want us to hear that, that yes, as deep and as dark and as deadly as our sin is, the goodness of the gospel and its ability to forgive is brighter, stronger, and more powerful than your sin. Come to the Lord. Come to the one who is ready and able to forgive, who brings his forgiveness immediately. Be vulnerable. Be willing to experience intimacy by stepping out and saying, I am a sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. To, to close, I just want to offer three things to consider as we try to implement confession as a vital part of our prayer life. Just three quick things. First, have nothing to hide and nothing to prove. In prayer, have nothing to hide. Because God knows us, there's no reason to hide. And because we know that he has forgiven us and stands ready to forgive, we have nothing to prove. In your prayers, have nothing to hide, nothing to prove. Second, confess with those that you trust. When it comes to confession in, in, in the corporate community, make sure that you are being vulnerable and open, but do so with those that you trust. Be wise about who you give the fine china of your life to. But that's a two-way street. You need to be someone who is also trusting and gracious when those come to you, confessing their sin. May we be a community where it is truly safe to be open and honest and vulnerable, to experience the intimacy of Christ in the church. And lastly, look at the cross. Look at the cross. I remember hearing someone once say that for every look at your sin, look 10 times to the cross. Yes, we need to re be reminded of the depth of our sin, but it's so that we might see and understand the depth of our forgiveness. In confession, we are reminded afresh of the simple yet profound truths that we are so prone to forget that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great savior. I'll close with this last quote by John Owen and just speaking to the weary, broken, burdened, sin-sick souls. He says, set your faith upon Christ for the killing of your sin. 
His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in light of Christ's great work for you, and you will die a conqueror. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is quick to forgive. Lord, help us to see that you, in your justice and your mercy, you are a God who hates our sin, but you also stand ready to forgive us of our sin. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would illuminate in our hearts and help us to see the foolishness of our ways in remaining silent about our sin that is destroying us and destroying others. May we come clean and experience the blessedness of hearing from you, your sins are forgiven, I count them no more. Lord, may may we see the perfect substitute of Jesus on the cross for us who bore our sins so that we do not have to bear them. Lord, would you bring freedom? Would you bring healing? And may we see that truly intimacy with you comes through vulnerability and confessing our sin. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, the Lord's table is a place where we are brought to a deeper understanding of this reality, that we have nothing to hide and nothing to prove. That at the Lord's table, we see that that God cared enough about us and hated our sins so much that he entered into our world to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. The Lord's table is a reminder that we have nothing to hide and nothing to prove. But the Lord's table also is, is, so to speak, a family meal it is open to all people who come to say that Jesus is Lord of their life. And so if that's not you, if, if you would say, I'm just not sure where I stand, I don't know what to think about all of this Christianity stuff, first of all, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're considering that. But what I would encourage you to do is to not take the bread and the cup, but to take Christ instead. Spend some time reflecting on the beauty and the bittersweetness of confession and how that leads to freedom and being forgiven. So come to the Lord's table and be reminded of this good truth. Come. Come.